Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Before we start today, I have some very exciting news. Just in time for Christmas, the Scandinavian History Podcast shop is now open for business. You can support the show by purchasing a stylish Scandinavian History Podcast t-shirt, tote bag, laptop case, face mask, or almost anything else your heart desires. No long ships available though. Sorry about that. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the king of the gods. So you can now get a coffee mug with a cheerful message, wake up early if you want another man's land or life, a cute onesie for your baby with the text, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or a decorative pillow for the office couch saying, speak useful words or be silent. The options are almost endless. Links to these amazing items and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. And now, let's get on with the show. Last time, we followed the careers of the heirs of Harald Hadrada, more specifically his son Olaf the Peaceful and Olaf's son Magnus Barefoot. Even though the Viking Age is conventionally seen to have ended in 1066 with the death of Harald Hadrada at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, his grandson Magnus made no sign of recognizing this fact. Instead, he did what Viking kings had been doing for generations and waged wars both on his neighbors and in the British Isles. In the end, he was killed in Ireland and the fact that he wasn't more successful and that his conquests didn't last beyond his death is no doubt the reason why he's not considered a Viking Age king in English-speaking historiography. This time, we'll look at how Scandinavians tend to time the end of the Viking Age and the beginning of the Middle Ages. It's a little more complex than just a single end date, and it also varies slightly from country to country. The shift from the Viking Age to the Middle Ages was gradual, but scholars tend to point to a number of critical factors, such as the end of Viking-style trading and raiding, the establishment of a kingdom, and the conversion to Christianity. Today, we'll also take a look at how a medieval Scandinavian kingdom was structured and managed, financially, politically, and militarily. Episode 32, Three Kingdoms. So, if it wasn't the death of Harald Hardrada that did the trick, how and why did the Viking Age eventually end? Why did Vikings stop harassing the Franks, Germans, English and the Irish with their raiding? Was it because the conversion of the Scandinavians to Christianity made them all meek and peaceful, causing them to abandon their sinful ways of violence? Hardly, as future episodes will give abundant examples of continued Scandinavian aggression, both domestically and on the continent. One theory is that their role as middlemen in the trade between Europeans and the East no longer was needed. During the Viking Age, Scandinavians played a key role and made a lot of money in selling furs, slaves and other valuable commodities in Miklagord and Serkland. They were paid in silver, and for this silver they could buy fabrics, weapons and other things they needed in Scandinavia. But the silver mines under Arab control dried up more or less at the same time as silver was discovered in Central Europe. That meant that the Vikings weren't needed any longer. Eventually, the old trade routes across the Mediterranean Sea that had been disrupted due to the Arab expansion into the region were also reopened. 
that made the long and rather inconvenient Viking routes along the Russian rivers obsolete. Another reason the raiding in Western Europe became a less attractive summer pastime for Scandinavian warriors was that the kingdoms of Western Europe eventually got them, their acts together and started to organize proper defenses. When attacks no longer were low risk and high profit, the interest in these relatively expensive expeditions cooled considerably. Other important factors in the shift from the Viking Age to the Middle Ages are the establishment of the three Scandinavian kingdoms and the conversion to Christianity. These two processes happened in parallel and to a certain extent they are dependent on one another. In the last 10 episodes or so, both the Christianization and the formation of the kingdoms have been themes in the background as we've followed the political events. In this and the next episode, we'll take a closer look at the end result. The state and the church are two crucial factors that not only characterize the medieval world, but they were also new to Scandinavia at this point in time. In a way, the crown on the cross shut the door culturally, politically and mentally on the Viking Age. The world that the Vikings inhabited was so different partly because of their religion and their political organization, and that's why it's justified to talk about the beginning of a new age. The Scandinavians were no longer a barbarous other, striking from the north, spreading death and stealing your stuff. They were now a part of Europe, integrated religiously, politically, culturally and economically. Denmark, Norway and Sweden were gradually becoming European-style kingdoms. This doesn't mean that the medieval Scandinavian states were anything like what we understand a state to be, or that it provided the services we've grown accustomed to expect from the state. No one in medieval Scandinavia expected the state to provide them with education, healthcare or a pension, for instance. These kingdoms were much weaker and more loosely held together. Some scholars also like to point to the fact that the king still didn't have a standing army or even a legal monopoly on violence. Such scholars preferred to postpone the establishment of a real state to the 16th century at the earliest. The development of the state is obviously continuous, and so it's easier to recognize what we understand a state to be in the year 1600 than in the year 1200. But on the other hand, a lot of things have thankfully changed since the year 1600 as well, so you could make an argument for an even later date if you felt contrary. But since disputes over definitions tend to lead nowhere, except perhaps to promotions within academia, I'd rather not get bogged down in it here. I'll just note that some people think it's too early to talk about states at this point, but whether you think they qualify as real states or not, there definitely were three kingdoms with budding bureaucracies and a growing sense of geographical boundaries at this time. Note that these boundaries, though, they were different from the present-day borders. The northern parts of Norway and Sweden were sparsely populated and at best nominally under the king's control. Sweden, which today has an oblong shape, was much more box-like and it didn't have a southern or western coast. The most hotly contested area was the coastal area roughly running from Oslo to Copenhagen. At the beginning of the Middle Ages, it was divided between Norway and Denmark, and the border was where the river Göta Elv meets the sea. Sweden was basically locked out of the North Sea altogether, but over time we'll see Sweden push towards the coast, gaining access in later centuries. Looking at these three kingdoms separately, 
we can note that Denmark enjoyed a number of vital geographical benefits. It was the southernmost of the three kingdoms, and it consisted almost exclusively of rich farmland in a relatively compact territory with no deep forest or high mountains to complicate communications. Consequently, it was also the richest of the three kingdoms and had the largest population, probably more than the two others combined. Exact demographic statistics are lacking, but in the High Middle Ages, Denmark had approximately 1 million inhabitants, whereas Norway only had some 350 to 500,000, and Sweden perhaps 500 or maybe 600,000. As a consequence, it should surprise absolutely no one that Denmark was the dominant Scandinavian kingdom in the Middle Ages. Sweden was the largest of the three kingdoms, and though it did have lots of agricultural land, there were also lots of forests dividing the country. The population was centred on two lake districts, Lake Mälaren and the lakes Vänern and Vettern further south. Here's where the best farmland was to be found. Eventually, the southern coast of Finland, with similar geographical conditions, was added to the Kingdom of Sweden. Back then, it was actually easier to go from Lake Mälaren to Finland than to the lakes Vänern and Vettern and the archipelago at the most narrow point of the Baltic Sea serves as a bridge binding the two shores of the sea together. As we talked about in episode 28, Swedes and Geats, this geographical division of Sweden was also reflected in a political division that wasn't truly overcome until the mid-13th century. As I just mentioned, Norway had the smallest population of the three kingdoms. Even though Norway had some good farmland, especially in the southeast, in Trøndelag, and in the southwest, and the coastal regions enjoyed the mild winters brought on by the proximity to the ocean and the Gulf Stream, still the conditions for farming were by far worse here than in Denmark and Sweden. To stave off starvation, the Norwegians relied on the sea providing fish and on the forest providing game to a much larger extent than the Danes and the Swedes did. In most parts of Norway, the land was so poor that it couldn't support people living in villages like they did in Denmark and the best agricultural regions of Sweden. Instead, just like people in the more marginal parts of Sweden, people who were dependent on farming tended to live on large farms spread out over the country. A handful of families could share a common courtyard perhaps, but no more than that. So that was a few words about the geography. Now let's have a look at the political landscape of these three kingdoms. First of all, a kingdom requires a king. As the Viking Age turned into the Middle Ages, not only the power but also the status of the king increased. To begin with, the king was technically just the elected official who ran the country. And that's it. And even though Denmark and Sweden remained elective monarchies throughout the Middle Ages, from the 13th century onward, it was a narrow circle of bishops and noblemen who actually voted in these elections. They almost always voted for the oldest legitimate son of the previous king. But the fact that the election became a formality doesn't mean that it was pointless. It turned into an important opportunity to impose limitations on the power of the elected king in order to avoid two strong and autocratic monarchs. In Norway, where the kings had a stronger domestic position, they managed to do away with these pesky elections and could succeed automatically without the approval of the people, however narrowly defined. The idea that the sons of the previous king had some claim to their father's throne wasn't a new one, and it had been around throughout the Viking Age too. 
But even though birth was an important factor back then, money, power and charisma were just as important, and sometimes more so for Viking Age pretenders. In the Middle Ages, formal elections and or legitimate birth became increasingly important for even coming into question for the top job. The church tried to push for the principle that the oldest son born of the previous king within wedlock would be the only possible candidate to succeed. That would not only have strengthened the status of the Christian marriage, but it would also have made successions more predictable and less likely to lead to civil war between rival candidates for the throne every time the old king kicked the bucket. But there was considerable resistance. In Scandinavian culture, the idea that royal blood gave claim to the throne, whether you were born within wedlock or not, was still widespread. As a result, the early Middle Ages were far from devoid from violent struggles for various thrones. We'll see quite a lot of that in future episodes. But little by little, the continental idea that the royal mother also was important took root and Scandinavian kings would increasingly choose only to marry women from other royal families. This not only served to form alliances with other countries, but also put the royals apart and above their countrymen. Their countrymen's daughters were still good enough to be royal mistresses, obviously, but not, as a rule, to produce acceptable heirs to the throne. The queen became more important when the principle of legitimate succession became established. Before, the queen had been only one of the women in the king's household. The most important, sure, but still not the only one. Now, the difference between her and other women at court became much more pronounced. A clear indication of their elevated status was the fact that from the 12th century onwards, queens were usually crowned together with their husbands. This doesn't mean that the queens had any formal political power unless they were widowed. As long as the king lived, the queen had to act behind the scenes if she wanted to influence politics. But if she was so inclined, she could wield considerable influence, and befriending the queen could of course be a great way to get closer to the king. At the same time, it could be a risky game. The queen consorts were often foreigners, so it was convenient to blame the king's bad decisions or other misfortunes on them. All in all, the more predictable succession, the expectation of marrying other royals, and cultural influences from the continent led to an elevation of the king within Scandinavian society in the Middle Ages. We see this in attempts to introduce the continental practice of honorifics when addressing the king, for instance, as well as in a number of other rules made to show respect or deference to the monarch. For instance, in 1308, Håkon V of Norway established a rule stating that no nobleman was allowed to introduce new fashions in the kingdom. All new things must first be worn by the king, and he should be the trendsetter. Norwegian noblemen were expected to show their loyalty to the king by following his lead in fashion. Breaking this rule could be dangerous, since it could lead to the loss of the king's friendship as well as to the loss of your noble status. But you don't run a kingdom on legitimacy and deference. To rule effectively, you need cash. So where did the medieval monarch's money come from? In the Viking Age, the king's income was to a large extent based on money he could come by through raiding abroad. Plundering was the ultimate get-rich-quick scheme, but in the Middle Ages this option was no longer on the table. As a consequence, we see an initial dip in royal income. 
Instead, kings had to rely on or even develop new sources of revenue, taxes, fees and fines. As time progressed, the new state bureaucracies became better at tapping into these sources, securing more and more rights to taxation and demanding fines for an increasing number of crimes. But as a rule, medieval kings still had relatively modest incomes. Norwegian kings were the poorest, the Swedish kings had more disposable income, but the Danish kings were by far the richest. The king of Denmark had an income that was approximately five to ten times higher than that of his Norwegian colleague. This is obviously connected to the fact that Denmark as a country was richer than Norway. But another reason is the different sources of income that they relied on. For reasons that we'll get into in a minute, taxes were higher in Denmark than in Norway. The Norwegian king compensated by making more money from fines. He could collect fines for more crimes than other kings, and the collection was more effective than elsewhere in Scandinavia. An additional way to make money was to literally make money. In the Middle Ages, all three Scandinavian kings secured monopolies on minting coins within their own kingdoms. The monopoly also included the right to demand that only the king's coins be used in his realm, and all foreign coins that were brought into the realm had to be exchanged. And the king, of course, set the exchange rate as he saw fit. A third, and even sneakier way to increase incomes from the monopoly of minting coins was the ability to decrease the silver content in the coins. The kings had the right to withdraw all coins from circulation and to replace them with new coins containing less silver. When the king needed more money, this was an excellent way to make the kingdom's silver supply last longer, and the long-term effect of inflation was still unknown to the medieval Scandinavians. Minting coins also had a positive side effect by strengthening the king's image, or at least by spreading it around. Coins were minted with the face and name of the king, so every time you paid with a coin or just held a coin, you saw the image and the name of the king, and you were reminded of who was in charge. But propaganda and branding was just a side effect. The most important aspect was the revenue generated from the minting. All in all, it represented roughly 10% of the income of a medieval Scandinavian monarch. 10% is nothing to sneeze at, but it still dwarfed in comparison to the most important source of income, the Leidung tax, which represented approximately 40% of the king's annual income. But was, what was the Leidung tax? To answer that, we need to look at the military organization of medieval Scandinavia. The Leidung was a form of conscription of free landowning men to man ships for the defense of the coastal regions, and it existed in all three kingdoms. It was introduced in the 10th century, first voluntary, but, as so often is the case, it later became mandatory. It's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, example of statewide organization by the kings. According to medieval law, free men were obliged to have a minimal set of weapons ready at home if and when they were called up for Leidang. Which weapons were required varied from country to country and region to region, but it usually included a spear, a sword or an axe, a shield and a helmet. People who refused to participate paid a fine to the king. Over time, it became increasingly common to pay the fine instead of serving. Eventually, the kings managed to turn the Leidang into a permanent thing, but not of military service, but rather a tax paid in war and peace alike. As I mentioned a moment ago, it represented approximately 40% of the king's income, and it remained the most important source 
of income throughout the Middle Ages. But even though the Leidang was crucial to the kingdom's finances, the military importance decreased with time, when new military techniques such as cavalry and castles were introduced. The sea-based Viking Age style of warfare, with quick raids with ships, was replaced by land-based campaigns and formal battles. In the Middle Ages, general military service is eventually replaced by a system where a small minority fights and the rest pays taxes to support them. Foot soldiers were still needed, especially archers, but when the military importance of regular people lessened, the peasantry's ability to make its voice heard against the king also decreased. Not being vital for military purposes weakened the general population politically. Conversely, those who remained warriors developed into an elite force of knights on horseback, and as they became the most important military force in the kingdom, their political power also grew, at the expense of the general population of free landowning farmers. These knights on horseback could defeat a regular peasant force on foot that was ten times larger. But to become a knight, you not only needed the money for the horse, the armor and the weapons, all of which became increasingly elaborate and expensive as the Middle Ages progressed. But you also needed training, and that training started from an early age. So if you were an upstart who made a lot of money, in itself not very likely in a static economy based on agriculture where trading and raiding no longer were realistic career options, you couldn't just buy a horse in a kit and set out to fight. If you weren't born to be a knight, it was basically impossible to become one. With time, these knights developed into the Scandinavian nobility, and its members copied pattern of aristocracy from the continent. The formalization of the nobility, that is the granting of privileges such as not paying taxes or in turn for fighting the king's wars on horseback, was first introduced in Denmark under the influence of German models. It happened not only because the Germans were culturally influencing their neighbors to the north, but also because they were a military threat to the Danes, who needed to adapt to this new style of warfare. Sweden came next. This new style of warfare was actually quite suitable for Sweden, a country with more inland settlement and with larger areas inaccessible to fleets than was the case in Denmark and Norway. In Norway, though, things were different. There, sea warfare remained important, and so did the muster of the general population of free land-owning men. Most of the important battles in the medieval Norwegian civil wars were sea battles. Crossing Norway, a country of high mountains and long fjords cutting into the land, with your cavalry was difficult and time-consuming under the best of circumstances. If you wanted to control Norway, you needed a fleet. Also, don't forget that Norway was poorer than other Scandinavian kingdoms, and far fewer Norwegians could keep horses for military purposes. So Norway retained the Leidang system throughout the Middle Ages, meaning that you might still be called to serve on a ship, but at least the taxes were lower than in Denmark and Sweden. Eventually, though, even Norway had to reform, and the Norwegians also had to introduce cavalry units, not least border disputes with Sweden, where a fleet was useless because the contested area was far from the coast, sped up this process. But since Norway was too poor to be able to produce an army of mounted knights, a mixed system was used of conscripted peasants and some knights on horseback. The regular peasant army worked reasonably well in defensive positions, but wasn't of much use on the offensive though. Another feature of the new military organization with land-based warfare was the construction of castles. 
Medieval castles were smaller than the Trelleborgs that Harald Blowtooth built, but they had much higher walls. Castles were expensive but important strongholds in war that could withstand numerically superior forces for a long time, and since there were plenty of wars in the Middle Ages, more and more castles were constructed. Castle building started in the 11th century and really took off in the 13th century. By the middle of that century, the Danish king, who was on the forefront of this trend as well, already had 20 castles and several others were constructed by powerful noblemen. In Sweden, there were fewer and simpler castles and it shouldn't surprise you to learn that there were even fewer castles built in Norway, which, you know, was both poorer and less into land-based warfare. These castles weren't only great to have during wars, though. They were also used in uh, peacetime as residences for the king or nobles, who shared in the administration and running of the kingdom. Castles offered protection not only from the invading armies, but also from irate peasants, so it became much easier to dominate local populations from behind castle walls. One big drawback with castles was that they were enormously expensive, both to build and to maintain. That meant that the king sometimes had no choice but to grant them to noblemen in exchange for money and administrative services. Once a nobleman was safely ensconced in a castle, his power and independence grew. He could dominate the surrounding land just like the king could, and he could also defend himself against both peasantry and the king if need be. That way, castle building is a sign of the strengthening of the nobleman, but also of the stratification of the nobility. Not every knight could afford to build a castle, but rich and powerful castle-dwelling noblemen could become almost independent mini-kings, reversing the development of centralization that we see during the Middle Ages. Because of this, the King of Denmark tried to forbid his nobles from building private castles in the 1390s, but it was only partially successful, and the nobility remained a threat to the power of the Danish crown. Since there were much fewer castles in Norway, we also see the development of a different model of administration there, more or less at the same time as the Danish king started to grant castles and administrative rights to noblemen, the Norwegian king divided his country into districts, appointing a royal official to run each district. These officials were far from always connected to the area they were set to administrate, and they could be replaced at the king's will and moved from one district to another. This is very different from Denmark and Sweden, where noble families lived for generations in their castles, on the same land, creating local ties and loyalties beyond the king's control. That meant that the king of Norway had more direct control over his kingdom. So even though the king of Norway had fewer resources, he was stronger than the kings of Denmark and Sweden, at least within his own kingdom. Norwegian kings also had more military control, since the noblemen were not primarily used as a military force, but rather as administrators. As a consequence, Norway may have been at a disadvantage compared to Denmark and Sweden, but not as big as it would seem if you only look at the money, because Norway was more centralized and had fewer noblemen who could cause trouble for the king. But regardless of how tight the king held on to the reins of the kingdom, the general trend in Scandinavia throughout the Middle Ages is that the privileges of the nobility developed and increased over time, albeit not uniformly. The pattern remains that the Norwegian noblemen had fewer privileges and the Danish ones had the most far-reaching ones. When the system was introduced, noblemen 
were exempt from paying taxes on their own farm. But later, the tax exemption was extended to include land they rented out to tenants. Later still, they started to collect fines that belonged to the king from their own tenants. Initially, nobles only held the privilege of tax-free status as long as they could actually fight in wars. But eventually, the demand on the nobles to actually muster and participate in war disappeared. This happened toward the end of the Middle Ages, when the cavalry lost some of its military importance. But the nobles kept their privileges all the same. The growing power of the nobility meant that the thing, that is, the assembly where free men gathered to discuss and decide laws and legal proceedings, was replaced by the king consulting with the aristocracy and clerics when he was to consult with the people. Central national assemblies of this kind, instead of local things, became more common in the 12th and 13th centuries. Representatives of the common people were still present, but they were increasingly kept out of the decision-making and were expected to just agree to what their betters decided. Another way in which the noblemen increased their power and influence was through the royal bureaucracy. It developed and expanded out of the royal household and estates to include the whole kingdom. This soon became too large an apparatus for the king to control on his own, and so trusted noblemen were tasked with running various regions or functions of state. In the late 12th century and early 13th century, we see a new position being introduced, the Chancellor. His job was originally to handle the king's accounts and correspondence, but his importance grew as the central bureaucracy grew. A necessary condition for the development of the Chancery was the increasing dependency on writing, which we see from the 13th century onward. Since literacy came via the church, it's not surprising to see senior clerics filling the role of the Chancellor on many occasions. But secular aristocrats would eventually dominate this office as well. Just like the king's household grew into the national bureaucracy, the king's circle of friends also grew into an important state organ in the 13th century. The Council of State. This was a small group of people who advised the king on policy and sometimes were given responsibility over various policy areas, such as finance or defense. The seats on the council were occupied by members of the high nobility and senior clerics, such as the archbishop and perhaps another bishop or two. The function of the Council of State varied over time and from country to country, but as a general rule, the Norwegian Council of State functioned as an organ that the king used to rule his kingdom, whereas the Danish and Swedish councils had more influence on its own, and its members used that influence to limit the king's power. That, ladies and gentlemen, was a brief overview of how the Scandinavian kingdoms developed politically, financially and military throughout the Middle Ages. Hopefully, I've managed to show you how all of these three aspects are interconnected. Next episode will be devoted to the one institution that developed during the Middle Ages that could challenge the state's importance. An institution that put its mark in medieval Scandinavia just as much, if not more, than the kingdom. I refer, of course, to the church. During the Middle Ages, Scandinavia became an integrated part of Catholic Europe, and the Church influenced not only beliefs, but also culture, education, and the daily life of everyone in a way that not even the King could. The development and stability of the three Scandinavian kingdoms was dependent on the Church, but at the same time, the Church eventually became so powerful that it could threaten the state from within. Tune in next time if you'd like to know how. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. 
If you did, please spread the word wherever you run into others who may be interested in Scandinavian history, like the office Christmas party, the check-in line at the airport, or your dance class. Also, please consider leaving a favorable review and perhaps sprinkle some stars on Apple Podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me a message on that platform as well, at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.